Welcome to season four of the Right Idea Podcast. I'm Kevin Nicholson, volunteer president and CEO of No Better Friend Corp. The theme for this season is Fight for America. In this third episode of season four, we'll feature audio from Adam Coleman, author and founder of Wrong Speak Publishing. Adam joined our No Better Friend Corp team for our first and second forums on fighting critical race theory. And today's episode features his speech from Pewaukee, Wisconsin in June of 2021. Today's episode also features a speech from Christian Watson, a spokesman with Colorist United at our third forum on fighting critical race theory that took place in Green Bay, Wisconsin in September of 2021. In part one of today's episode, you'll hear from Adam Coleman. Adam was born in Detroit, but raised in a variety of states throughout the United States. He self-published his first book, Black Victim to Black Victor, in March of 2021. Today, Adam will explain what drove him to write the book and he'll read an excerpt from the introduction and he will analyze what he referred to as the, quote, six main things that come to mind when discussing critical race theory. It's a great and meaningful presentation and I hope that you enjoy. This is the Right Idea Podcast. Pardon my nervousness. This is the first time I've ever done this, so. Um. <laughs> So basically, um, I'm just like you. I'm an average American. Um, you know, I'm very much so into what's going on around me, the talk of race, uh, the way we, the way we are viewing how we treat people in this country. Um, I, I found it very problematic, to use the last term, uh, and I found it very poisonous. Um, I'm just like you guys. We were all outraged at what happened with George Floyd. And no one thinks he deserves to die, although I have a certain perspective that you are accountable for your actions in this life. So um, I decided one day I'm just going to sit down and write and found a, a way online to just express how I felt. And I got encouragement from people just like you to, uh, to go forward. And... Um, you know, my belief in Jesus. And my belief in Christ and my belief in self um, allowed for me to say, damn all the people who want to chastise me for how I feel, how I believe, what I believe, and uh, I want to be able to express myself. So um, I sat down one day and just started writing. And it took me about nine to ten months, and I self-published my book, Black Victim to Black Victim. And um, I wanted to read just part of the introduction. Uh, so like he said, I'm a big advocate for free speech and questioning the world. You know, critical race theory claims to be critical about certain things, but I'm being rationally critical about certain things, about the world, about myself, um, how to become a better person, better American, better Christian. So um, I just want to read that for you. Am I actually broken? And if I am broken, can I be fixed? Why did it feel as if my birth created an inconvenience for my father and a burden for my mother? Why is the choice of neglect common for black men? Why are black women forgiven for failing to select better men? Why am I told to distrust the white man when I couldn't even depend on my black father? If the greatest danger to a black man in America is the white man, 
You know, why do the most successful black people choose to live among them? <laughs> why does my pigmentation determine my aspirations? Why must I live in the past with the pain of my ancestors instead of creating a future of hope? Why does wanting aspirations of racial togetherness make me a traitor? Why is Martin Luther King Jr. given hero status, but we never listen to our hero's message? Why is forgiveness seen as a weakness and resentment seen as empowerment? Why is white supremacy bad and black supremacy good? Why is hatred seen as subjective instead of objective? Why must black people fit in a box? Why aren't we allowed to decide for ourselves? Why must I fit a narrative? Why must I focus on race instead of class? Why does everyone think they need to help black people? Why are black people tolerating lowered expectations from the liberal elite? Why must black people be America's charity case? How can we expect more from other Americans when we don't appear to expect much from ourselves? Why do we stay quiet when black men terrorize the innocent within our own communities, but speak loudly when one of these terrorists dies? Why do we martyr flawed black men and ignore honorable black men? Why are a third of our pregnant black women aborting their children? Why do we wait for the government to save us when we are capable of saving ourselves? Why do we overlook the destructive role that the government has played since the beginning? Why have we allowed family, oh, I'm sorry, why have we allowed family court to displace the black family? Why have we reduced the importance of the black father as being a bi-weekly check? Who benefits from our familial disorder? Could it be the political elite that find us more beneficial, divided, and united? Could it be the alleged black leadership that needs useful victims for their boundless greed? Why are black people the only racial group that is expected to have authority figures? Why is it that these so-called black leaders are always in bed with the political establishment? Why is honest curiosity seen as an assault? Why do these questions offend you? <laughs> Why am I not forgiven? Why am I not given the benefit of the doubt? Why does the removing black why does removing black victimhood make us feel naked? Why are excuses replacing actions and intentions replacing results? Why are we not willing to admit that there has been immense progress made? 
Is it because we are secretly afraid of losing our leverage over white guilt? Are we more in love with complaining than repairing? Do we believe we can achieve prosperity without the help of anyone else? Do we want to be America's perpetual victim? Or do we want to transform our group's situation into becoming America's resilient victors? Thank you. You know, this, this book was about taking a look at the world, a look at myself, a look at my family. You know, I'm critical of everybody. I'm critical of the message that is being spread around this country. Um, one of, there's six main things that ideas like critical race theory brings to mind that I find to be very concerning. The first thing is racial inevitability. My skin color determines who I am to these people. I am only as successful as my skin. No matter how hard I try, there will always be oppression. And if I ask for help, I will always want to accept it because I'm unable to be successful on my own. My skin is me and not my, uh, my individuality. That's all gone. I am only part of the collective. All you see is black, and that is me. That's it. It's just that simple, and there's nothing you can do about it. And for you, if you're white, that's it. I already know who you are. I don't need to meet you. I don't need to shake your hand. I don't need to talk to you. You're my oppressor. It doesn't matter how nice you are to me. I know secretly you like how the system oppresses me. It is this racial inevitability that is extremely poisonous. And when you give this information to children, what do you think they're going to do with it? How do you think they're going to process it? You can't give children information and think that they're going to do nothing with it. We have college students running crazy in college campuses, yet they're adults. And they don't know how to handle this information. So uh, the next thing is what I call an invisible enemy. Much of critical race theory says that your racism is not on the individual level, it's systemic, which means we can't see it, but it's there, we know it's there. It's no matter how you lay it out, if there's a disparity or there's a situation, and they're always clever to take an individual situation, even though they say that individual situation is, um, it's, it's a bigger picture to a system problem. So they have no problem going from the collective to the singular, as long as it proves their point that there's a bigger problem. So it doesn't matter that there are more people that were struck and killed by lightning than there were black people who were shot unarmed by the police. So that information doesn't matter. It only matters that George Floyd died while in custody of the police, and it proves their point. And so having this boogeyman of the system, no matter what it is, if I don't get a job, it's because I'm black. If I don't succeed, it's because I'm black. It is this inevitability, it's a system that is oppressive. And in order to beat the system, we're well, gonna tear it down. And how did the system exist? Because America, America did so. America's the reason why. It is this inevitable, invisible enemy 
that is always there. And no matter if you're LeBron James, who's near a billionaire, Oprah Winfrey, who's a billionaire, doesn't matter. Those are outliers. Right, Obama. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that black people are only 13% of the population yet can still won the popular vote. It doesn't matter. The system's still in place. The other problem is it creates saviors and victims. And so you have people who are white, who are sympathetic to what they are hearing. All they hear is one-way messaging. Blacks are victims. Hispanics are victims. Anyone who is non-white is a victim of some sort. And they play upon our weakness, that we care about people as Americans. We're conscious. We don't want to offend people. We know our history. So they play upon our weakness. That is why critical race theory is able to make it as far as it has. They want to perpetuate the victim, and you become the savior. But in order for you to become a savior, you have to remove my individuality. You have to remove my manhood. You have to take my power. And that brings me to um, the removal of agency. You have to remove my agency in order to be my savior. That is a really powerful thing when I started um, making a transformation in my life. Being accountable, being accountable for my actions, my failures, my successes. I had to be accountable as a man. And for someone to come up to me, regardless of the color, and say that I am unable to do what I want to do because of my skin color, I'm able to succeed because some system that I can't even see, I have far bigger problems in my life than some invisible system that you always want to reference, that is this convenient boogeyman that you always want to go towards. You know, my issues growing up about my father, 67 or so percent of black people grow up in a single-parent household. That's an issue regardless of anything else. That is something that's fixable. This invisible person that lives somewhere, you know, that's always colluding with everything, everything in our society, I'm supposed to worry about that. And I'm supposed to wait for my savior. Whether the savior is the government, whether the savior is an individual, I'm supposed to wait for them. And I'm supposed to give up my agency. My agency is my power. My accountability is my power. And they want me to give that up. And that is extremely disheartening because I know a lot of black people have. I know a lot of black people are waiting for a BLM. They're waiting for the government to do something. They're waiting for reparations. They're waiting for a check. They're waiting for something. They're always waiting. And they're not doing. They're not saying, I am struggling because of my decisions. I have children out of wedlock, not because some white man told me to do this, because I did it on my own regard. Now I need to be accountable for those children. You know, the black men like I talk about, like my father, who would rather have a check come through for my mother than come and actually see me, that's an individual choice. That's not a system. As a matter of fact, the system allows for it to happen. So these individual choices are being removed with our agency. We can't do anything about it. It's that system that's always in place. I know you're looking around for it. You don't see it. But it's there. Trust me, it's there. That system's always there. One of the other things that 
I think is probably one of the most detrimental things, especially for black Americans. We are unfortunately always trapped in the past. We're always referencing the past. Anything that happens now is a reference to the past. George Floyd died, and that's similar to slave catchers. You know, my oppression of today is similar to Jim Crow. Them asking to check my ID in Georgia is similar to the voting rights or voting uh, restrictions in Jim Crow South. Everything is always referenced to the past, and it's always to scare people. And it works. It scares a lot of black people. 80 to 90% of black people vote for Democrats. I used to be one of them until I woke the hell up. <laughs> I, one of the reasons why I woke up is because, like what they mentioned before, this um, racial politics. I started seeing the pandering. I started seeing the constant pandering, the showing up on black television shows, or to show up, uh, I like to use the example of Hillary Clinton going to a Southern Baptist church. And all of a sudden, she has a Southern twang to her voice. And black people eat it up. They do it because it works. They don't expect much from us. And I saw that over and over. Kamala Harris going on uh, one of the most popular hip-hop stations and saying, yeah, I smoke weed. No, that's what she thinks that we are. We're the lowest denominator consistently. Joe Biden could have talked to any influential black person. Who do you sit down and talk to? Cardi B. You know, she's our representation. The ignorant get the voice. Not the intelligent, not people like me, not people who want to strive to be something better. Not the most successful business people in this world. Now he wants to sit down and talk to Cardi B. It's this constant pandering, this lowered expectations that the Democrats constantly have. And they love racial politics. And they love it because it works. And it's working and it's destroying this country. And so if I could leave with one thing saying is, I know the vast majority of you are probably Republicans. <laughs> Patriots. Patriots, okay. I would advocate for you. Don't mimic them. Don't see me as a black person. See me as a man who happens to be black. you enjoyed part one of today's episode. In part two, you'll hear from Christian Watson. Christian joined us for our No Better Friend Corp forum on fighting critical race theory that we hosted in Green Bay in September of 2021. Christian is a spokesperson with Colorist United, the host of the Pensive Politics podcast and the host of the Christian Watson channel on YouTube. He's been featured across digital media and visual media outlets such as Newsmax TV, 
The Washington Examiner, USA Today, and more. Today, Christian will speak about his personal experience with critical race theory, from his time participating in college debate, to currently fighting back against CRT through Color Us United and his online platforms. I hope you enjoy. Before I go into anything deeper, um, you know, let me just add a little bit of a personal note to this. So my experience with critical race theory was actually, is actually quite personal. A lot of us experience critical race theory through seeing certain things happen in school boards, seeing parents get upset about what their kids are be, were being taught, seeing authors and charlatans like uh, Robin D'Angelo sell millions of, of dollars of nonsense, millions of dollars of books worth of nonsense. My experience actually comes from a personal place. So uh, I'm actually a senior in college right now. I'm about to finish my uh, senior year at, in December. And at the beginning of my collegiate career, when I was a freshman, I was involved in collegiate debate. And collegiate debate, and I'll get into a lot of this a little bit and a little bit here, but I'll just, I'll just say an overview of it. Collegiate debate is actually riddled and filled and basically is a critical race theory practice. In fact, calling it a debate, in my opinion, is a deception because debates don't Debates are about the sort of exchange between the exchange between truth and error, error and falsehood, as um, as John Stuart Mill would say. But uh, in college debate, you don't see that happening. What you see is actually the confirmation of presuppositions of how human beings are, of how society is, of how institutions are, and you see people debating on those grounds. But a true debate will break those shackles and it will challenge all presuppositions. And the only presupposition that a debate should have is that you're trying to work towards something greater and higher, and that is the truth. And this was an idea that I always had in my mind that debate was going to, going to be about. So when I first went to my uh, college debate coach, my former college debate coach now, and I told him I wanted to be on the debate team, uh, he told me, well, what kind of philosophers or thinkers do you like reading? Well, I said, well, you know, I really like Ayn Rand and I like Immanuel Kant. Now, when I said Ayn Rand, his, eye, his eyes went big. When I, when I said Immanuel Kant, he said, oh, okay, you're good. Well, you're on the team. Now, now he's like, we can work on the Ayn Rand thing. And I think he had the idea, the impression that he was going to be able to con convict me from my individualist um, you know, paradigm. And unfortunately, being in that, being in collegiate debate only made it stronger. And so as I went, began my career as a collegiate debater, debaters have something called cases where you like compile a bunch of information from a certain point of view that you will argue in a round. Well, a lot of the people on my team had cases that were fundamentally based in critical race theory pedagogy. A lot of them were using their own gender, their own race, their sexualities, or other immutable characteristics as a means of making an argument about an issue that really had nothing, in many cases, had absolutely nothing to do with those things. I was arguing from the natural rights philosophy which founded America. I was arguing from the individualism that the founders embodied. I was arguing that truth is objective, that we can best understand it by understanding the natural world. And the natural world has certain things to say about us human beings. We are social animals. We are beings of reason. Uh, we are beings that have, uh, compared to every other of our ancestors, chimpanzees, apes, we have built magnificent civilizations from the ground up simply by applying our faculties, our, in my opinion, God-given faculties, um, that every one of us, including every one of you in this room, have access to. These truths, which I, in my opinion, are very observable and have formed the basis of the American ethos, were challenged, well, not only challenged, they were outright rejected in collegiate debate. And a lot of my team, you know, they were, they were kind, but I could tell that they were not expecting me to argue from these kind of presuppositions. They were not expecting me to argue from the presupposition of, of objective truth. They were expecting me to argue from a thing called lived experience. 
So I'm sure many of you know what lived experience is, but for those of you who are unacquainted, lived experience is this idea that truth and knowledge in the entire world, and I'm being a little bit hyperbolic here, is it doesn't ultimately comes from within. So how you interact with something is what that something is. So for example, if I, if let's say my lived experience has been me having bad encounters with the police, regardless of the actual statistical data and the established facts of how people in general encounter the police, lived experience tells me the police are bad, therefore they're bad. So it emits any kind of scientific understanding, emits any kind of observable um, methods and solely relies on the individual. And this is a lot of what I saw in collegiate debate. So my first encounter with critical race theory proper was through a theorist called Achille Mbembe. I hope I'm saying that correct. So many of you may not know who that is. Achille Mbembe is a theorist, a, a, uh, a African theorist who draws from a theorist called Michel Foucault and uses his understanding of politics to draw broader ideas of how society works, how a government tries to, pro tries to um, it's really complicated, tries to manipulate um, the mind, life and death, things of that sort. And I had encountered this author because one of the people on my debate team was actually using him in one of their arguments. And I got into like a seven hour conversation about how intuitively it just didn't feel right to me. Now I had no idea who Mbembe was. I didn't even know what critical race theory was. But the first time I had actually heard the word was when my teammates said, you know, Mbembe is one of these critical race theorists. I'm like, what's that? He's like, well, you know, Crenshaw. I'm like, I've heard of her. I don't know what that is. And eventually I found out, wait, hold on. These guys are not interested in, in, in observing things. They're not interested in actually debating the propositions that we are given in any round. They're interested in applying these other ideas onto topics they have no relation to and using them to drive home, drive home their points. So there was a sort of agenda and that's when my eyes really began um, to open. And so then uh, as I began going off to tournaments, I began seeing other teams from different schools quote several authors regularly. Derek Bell, who is a actually an influential scholar in critical race theory, he helped found it. Kimberly Crenshaw, who is considered the mother of intersectionality, she was quoted quite a lot. They were explicitly quoted. Now, in a normal setting, I would not mind this. I think that it's great to have a multiplicity, a wide diverse range of scholars being quoted for any given argument. But the problem was, not only were these individuals quoted, they were put on pedestals. And if you were to argue against their ideas, you were considered as a part of the the oppressors they were allegedly arguing against. Uh, and this was the ultimate problem with college debate. Critical race theory was not simply an idea amongst many that were debated. Critical race theory is actually the entire structure of what college debate in almost every single area, whether it's parliamentary, which is what I was in, whether it's policy, which is like, you know, having these things of evidence and talking like 10,000 uh, 10, lightning speed, regardless of what it is, critical race theory is built into the very structure of how folks make arguments. So what do I mean? So for example, um, when we criticize something in the real world, we just call it criticism. In debate, it's called a critique when you criticize your opponent's argument. Well, in debate, they actually phrase it critique with a K, which is a sort of Marxian understanding of what critique means. So they make critique about power structures implicitly rather than about the oppon your opponent's argument, which may have nothing to do with power structures. Um, many of the judges themselves actually will have said to me, yeah, I used to be a critical debater, which means they used to affirm critical race theory pedagogy, and that's how they judge all the cases through, even if the cases especially if the cases are an outright rejection of those ideas. So we didn't simply have this being here as a part of a wide tapestry of ideas. We had the actual goal of critical race theory being manifested in this academic activity. And that goal is to have these presuppositions that are unchallenged and, and namely the presupposition that everything, every disparity, every difference, every distinction in the human life 
And this is what uh, the critical race theorists Matsuda and Crenshaw say in words that wound. Every single distinction that we can find socially is a manifest um, result of systemic racism. That is the idea that endured in collegiate debate. And when you challenge that, not only would you lose, you'd also get called all kinds of names. Um, so given that these things are embedded into the structure of collegiate debate, I personally didn't find that good. I don't think anyone should, because collegiate debate actually, what kind of folks do debate? Lawyer, future lawyers do debate, politicians do debate, all kind of folks who go into institutions and influence our institutions end up doing debate and going out of it with all these ideas. Uh, well, that's what we've seen happen in America right now. Um, so when you have any activity that is defined by a certain idea, when you try to work outside that certain idea, you get attacked and you can't do that activity. So collegiate debate actually falls into what a true debate should be. And I alluded to this earlier. Um, John Stuart Mill, who's one of my favorite philosophers, said it in chapter three of On Liberty, I think it was chapter three, that the only way you really find truth is through the faculty of expression. And expression, um, the goal of expression should be exchanging falsehood, exchanging error for truth. And you get there by this sort of clash of ideas. This is also an idea that the juvenile, another philosopher that I read, has mentioned this sort of clash of ideas bringing about a sort of new birth of different conclusions. Well, you can't have a clash of ideas if a few set of ideas are not only accepted to be true without any critical thought, but are also forced on everyone else's and act activities throughout, and then they're, they're defined by those ideas in opposition to those ideas if they try to oppose it. So you never really had that happening in college debate. So ultimately, I saw this, this train coming down, and I, I, I just I said, you know what, man, this is not right. And on the side, I was actually doing, I was organizing speakers to come to campus to speak about issues that are uncomfortable, race, and so on and so forth. And a lot of people in the collegiate debate world, especially my team, were like, you know, Christian Watson, that guy is problematic. They use all these terms. He's problematic. He's white adjacent. We don't, we, he's offensive. We don't really want him on this team anymore. So I, uh, I always say I wasn't kicked. I didn't leave the debate team. The debate team left me. Uh, and I'm actually kind of glad they left me because I'm not sure I would be able to speak in front of you guys because I my goal was to always be a champion debater and I most likely would have caved. I would have absolutely probably caved to their tactics because you cannot win a debate tournament in America right now without speaking in the parlance of critical race theory, but I reject that outright. And so when you have our institutions influenced by people who are influenced by these ideas, then the broader question becomes, okay, how does this manifest outside of the debate space? Well. You have, and, and, and I'm sure all of you, all of you are aware of this. You have the largest teachers union in the country, saying explicitly, in one, in one hand, on one hand, that critical race theory is not being taught in schools. On the other hand, their delegates vote to defend and implement critical race theory in the country. Um, you have the Biden administration giving grants to the uh, education, well, setting criteria for a grant the education department gave out to serve school for the civics curriculum, um, having to include even Max Kendi's books. Uh, in there, you had the Salvation Army, which is, in my opinion, one of America's most venerable institutions, um, now making their uh, members read a curriculum called Let's Talk About Racism, uh, which is actually one of the things that Colorado United right now is fighting against through a petition campaign with Salvation Army members. You have these various instances of, of sort of intellectual injustice being committed against people. And then we're all, we're all being gaslit and told, you know, this is not really happening. Or if it is happening, it's simply a result of people's fragility and one talk, not, not wanting to talk about race. Well, I happen to think you can talk about race without actually holding race to be the definitive feature of every single thing. I think you can, you can talk about race without, well, by, by understanding that race itself is simply one feature of the complex world. But 
as I mentioned, critical race theory completely forgets this part and it, it confirms its hypothesis without testing it. So the scientific method, which has been the cradle of, well, not the cradle, it's been the method by which we, what we have acquired a lot of understanding of our mod, of the natural world, it begins with a, with a hypothesis. Then it moves on, There's and the, people think there are like a few steps. There are actually many different steps depending on the exact thing being tested. You have to test, you have to do a lot of things, you have to confirm it, you gotta test it against previous discoveries. Critical race theory just says no. When we look at stats, we can say that racism absolutely causes, causes disparities. When we look at policing, we can say that if this group of people is being impacted the most, they are being impacted because it's racist. Not just not because there could be a differential um, quality of action happening. They can look at every single thing and say, no, it must be race. And when you when this ideology is confined to academia, I guess it's okay. Not really, because people learn it and they go out and they're possessed by these wild ideas. But it's okay insofar as the force, the impact of it is not as big. But when you have people in the upper echelons of corporate America freaking out when President, former President Trump um, uh, signed an executive order to ban uh, critical race theory concepts from all federally funded um, entities, including corporations who got federal funds, when you have a multi-million dollar, billion dollar actually, diversity, equity, and inclusion industry that is um, overtaking and, and rooting itself in almost every educational, educational institute in America, when you have all these things manifesting in such a real way, you have to really get concerned about it. So uh, the question becomes, how do we fight this thing? And I'm sure you're going to hear a lot about this from other speakers tonight. I don't, I don't want to steal the thunder at all. But in my opinion, you have to fight it through first principles. A lot of folks point at critical race theory and say, this is racist, therefore it's bad. Look, I, I agree with you. It is bad. I think that saying it's racist, though, kind of, it, it's, it misses the broader point. Because to people who believe critical race theory concepts are adjacent or sympathetic to them, um, racism has to do with power, not with individual thought, or to the extent that individual thought is concerned at all, has to do with how it's applied in institutions. I think that we have to say that beyond it's racist, critical race theory is anti-scientific. Critical race theory is anti-individual. Critical race theory is, is, is really anti-intellectual. And we, and we have to explain what we mean by these things. And to explain what we mean by these things, we have to lay out a foundation of first principles. We value truth. We believe in the objective world. We believe in the individual. We believe there are certain constants about the human being that cannot be ruled away by this sort of Cartesian whim of confusion. We believe in these certain things, and from these premises, we'll defend those premises to the death, and from them, we will beat this sort of monster that has entangled the minds of, of, of thousands uh, of, of Americans. And so that's the problem that I see in the, uh, in the, in the, uh, in the discussion about critical race theory today. It's always about how, how do we convince folks of Martin Luther King's um, vision of constant of character, not color of skin? But it's never about how can we test the truth of these premises in the first place and, and, uh, and then move on to beating them intellectually and then you know, establishing King's vision. Because King's vision, in my opinion, should be evident to everyone. King's vision is not, in, is not really in question to those of us who genuinely dislike critical race theory. What is in question is the ruthless whittling down of the individual to uh, one factor, regardless of what it is, and then assuming that that individual is oppressed because of that one factor. And I think once we really reject that, uh, once we get on the, on the other side of that by, by deconstructing its premises, then I think that we're gonna we would have a, we're gonna have a, a much better time beating this thing gleefully, as opposed to simply exhorting people to be, be good people. Because I think we all have the capacity to be good people, but sometimes we're convinced that being a good person means following a certain political agenda, 
And in my opinion, there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing further from the truth. So that's about all I got to say, but uh, thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. I'm Kevin Nicholson. Thanks for joining us today on the Right Idea Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Right Idea Podcast on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Google, Ricochet, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.